Folks, keep that uh, passage open before you just now because we're going straight to uh, 1 Corinthians 14. We're actually looking at the whole of the chapter uh, together today. I was out with someone from the, the congregation recently for coffee and it said to me about this series in 1 Corinthians that it's hard going uh, and I couldn't disagree. Um, there are passages there that are quite hard to understand as we go on quite a a journey to a very distant time and very distant place to, to think of what Paul was saying to the church in Corinth. And then probably even harder are the things that we, we do come to understand that then seem hard to accept uh, because they're, uh, as God's word so often does, it, it stretches us and asks us uh, to, to really reconsider our own lives. Before we look at this passage this morning, let's just pray for God's help to understand and accept uh, what we hear in his word. Gracious God, we thank you that you speak to us, uh, that you don't leave us in the dark uh, about the important things uh, that you would have us know. Lord, we pray that you would help us today to, to understand uh, what might be difficult in some places to understand and also to, to accept what your spirit then shows us. Uh, make us wise enough to get it and obedient to, to live it out. Amen. Whenever you look at any passage in a long book like 1 Corinthians, it's important that you put it into its context. You remember uh, where it fits in, into the whole of Paul's argument. Chapter 14 is really the conclusion of a discussion that began way back in chapter 12, verse 1. Paul said back there, now about spiritual gifts, brothers, I don't want you to be ignorant. So in chapter 12, if you remember, he talked about the variety of gifts that God's Spirit gives to people. And he challenges the Corinthians who have been prioritizing uh, one gift over the others. He urges people who have gifts and all do, to use them uh, to, to build up and to bless others in the church family. In chapter 13, uh, which you looked at last week, Paul interrupts his discussion of gifts and talks uh, about love. And he says, basically, it doesn't matter what gifts you have if you don't love people. You could have all the gifts in the world, but without love, you're nothing. Love, not gifting, Paul says, is the most excellent way. So whenever we get to the opening verse of chapter 14, he, he lets us know that he's summarizing the argument so far. Follow the way of love, summarizing chapter 13, and eagerly desire spiritual gifts. There's chapter 12 for you. So it's not a case of either love or gifts. It's a case of both gifts and love. Then in the second half of verse 1, Paul introduces what's really going to be his theme for the whole of chapter 14. He says, eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. What does he mean? What does Paul mean here when he talks about prophecy? Well, why don't we ask him and let him define his own terms? In verse 3, he says that anyone who prophesies speaks to men for their strengthening encouragement and comfort. We're beginning to get a picture 
In verse 6, he groups prophecy with revelation, knowledge, and instruction. And later on in verse 24, he describes a scenario where a person who doesn't yet believe comes into church and he hears people prophesying. And the result is, Paul says, that he'll be convinced by all that he is a sinner and will be judged by all and the secrets of his heart will be laid bare. So he'll fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. So what what is prophecy that Paul's talking about here? It's some kind of instruction that strengthens, encourages, and comforts those who already believe in Jesus. And at the same time, it challenges those who don't yet believe to the point where they appreciate their sinfulness in the presence of the living God. Encourages believers, challenges those who don't yet believe. Paul's prioritizing just this, this prophecy as he calls it. And why does he do that? He does it because it builds up the church. Look at verse 4. He says, he who speaks in tongues edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. Remember what's going on here. The guys in Corinth were prioritizing the gift of tongues. They were saying that that having this mysterious gift of God's spirit, being able to speak in some unintelligible way, that was the hallmark of a really spiritual person. No, Paul says. Instead of striving after a gift of unintelligible speech, you should hope to prophesy, to speak words from God that your brothers and sisters will understand that will serve to strengthen them, encourage them, and to comfort them, and at the same time challenge those who don't yet believe. That's the gift you want. That's the gift to go for. I wonder, do you see any contemporary analogy for what Paul's talking about here, this prophetic (coughs) instruction in the Corinthian church? Is there any equivalent communication going on or being attempted in our time? Instruction that strengthens, encourages, and comforts believers, and yet at the same time challenges those who don't believe. That's what I try to do when I preach God's word here. This is what David and I and others in our preaching team try to do week in, week out, to bring God's word to God's people so that they'll be built up. And Paul says here that that's the most important thing we can be doing when we gather together. That has primacy over anything else that we might do, no matter how spiritual those activities appear to be. Paul says in verse 19, I'd rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Paul spent the first 25 verses of the chapter explaining here why he prioritizes prophecy over speaking in tongues and it's it's simple it's because it builds up the church that after all if you remember chapter 12 is what part being part of this body here is all about it's about building each other up 
So Paul's question to each one of us at any point in time is, what are you doing to build up your brothers and sisters in Christ? In the remaining verses of our chapter, Paul gives four or maybe five guidelines for how the Corinthians ought to conduct their worship services. I say maybe five because there's actually a question mark over the authenticity of a fifth guideline here in verses 34 to 35 about women staying silent in church. Let's begin with that one. It's a difficult paragraph for a number of reasons. Some of them are immediately evident and and others aren't. Firstly, I think the message of this paragraph is is difficult for us to hear in a a modern environment. And I have to admit, I find it difficult to hear it in those terms. What would be less clear to us is that the authenticity of these verses is difficult to establish. I need you to bear with me uh, for a moment here. We're not sure whether Paul actually said the the content of verses 34 and 35, or whether a later copyist added them to Paul's writings as they were being transcribed. Now, if you're visiting with us here today, you may not be clear about me and who I am and what my commitments are. Let me reassure you of my absolute commitment to the authority of the word of God Teaching God's word and calling people to live it out has become the work of my lifetime. So rest assured, you're not listening to someone this morning who doesn't take the Bible seriously. The truth is, while we can be absolutely confident of the authenticity of 99.9% of the New Testament writings, that is confident that what the original author Uh, wrote has been accurately transmitted to us there are a tiny number of occasions where that's not the case so Mark's gospel for example I don't know if you've ever noticed this has a long and a short ending flick back with me to uh, the end of Mark's gospel page 1024 keep your finger in 1 Corinthians if you haven't already lost it but flick back to the end of Mark's Gospel. You'll see there that the NIV draws a line under verse 8, and it says that the earliest manuscripts and some others don't have Mark chapter 16, verses 19 to 24. Flick back another page to chapter 15, verse 27. And you'll see a footnote from verse 27 offering a possible but not definitive verse 28. In the actual text, it jumps from 27 down to verse 29. There are a few other examples of this kind of thing in the New Testament where we're we're told there's a question mark here over some of the material whether it's authentic or not. As I've been studying this passage this week, I've come to see that there's a similar question mark over the authenticity 
of verses 34 and 35. So Dr. Gordon Fee, an expert in the field of text criticism, he makes a compelling case that these verses are not Paul's, but they're an addition of a copyist. Now, I'm not interested this morning in trying to convince you that that's the case or not. But to keep good conscience, I want you to know that there's an issue here. If you're interested in exploring that further, have a word with me, and I'll get you a copy of the the relevant part of that commentary and let you have a read. So there's a second problem. The first problem I mentioned is a problem of, of the message itself. There's a second problem here with authenticity. Let's proceed for a moment on the basis that the text is authentic. (coughs) Paul really did write these words in his first letter to Corinth, and that opens a third set of problems, those of interpretation. Firstly, I can't help but notice that the paragraph here seems entirely out of kilter with Paul's argument at this point. He's been talking all along about the subject of tongues and prophecy, and he returns to that subject again in verse 36. Gender simply isn't on the agenda, but but there it is, verses 35 and verses 36. Second, the paragraph says that women must be in submission, as the law says. Now, that's quite unlike Paul to just say the law says this, and not to tell you which part of God's word he's quoting. By the way, have a go sometime at finding that passage in the Old Testament law where it says that women should be silent in the assembly. And come and tell me once you've found it. A third problem of interpretation lies in the fact that Paul appears to be contradicting what he said earlier in his own letter. Chapter 11, verse 5 that passage that David valiantly struggled with a few weeks ago. Paul says, every woman who prays or prophesy with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Paul's assuming that women pray and prophesy in the assembly. And that gives us a real problem then with verses 34 and 35. And it results in some pretty ingenious interpretations on the part of the commentator. So Vaughan Roberts, for example, whose commentary we have used a lot, he says that Paul clearly cannot mean that women should not open their mouth at all. It's perhaps more likely that Paul is forbidding women from being involved in the particular activity of weighing prophecies, which has been his focus in the preceding verses. Folks, I could do a three or four part series on these two verses to deal with all the questions and all the material that's there. Maybe I'll make, I'll finish just now. I don't think this is the right place uh, for that. One final pastoral comment. We don't practice the silence of women here. I don't know if you've noticed that. We don't practice it in the Presbyterian Church in Ireland. And we don't practice it in Kirkpatrick Memorial. And I want to say that I'm grateful to God for the many times that I've been encouraged and blessed by the praying, the leading, and the preaching of gifted, godly women. 
if I'm wrong about all of this, and the Lord shows it to me someday, I will hold up my hands and add this to the very, very long list of other things that I'm wrong about. But my desire, as always, in this area too, is to live my whole life for the glory of God. Let's get back very quickly to finish to these other guidelines. You'll be glad to know they're a lot easier to deal with. Paul's first guideline back in verse 26 is that everything must be done for the strengthening of the church. So whether a person leads with a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation, all this is to be done for the strengthening of the church. It's really quite hard for us to imagine exactly what Paul's church gatherings in Corinth were like, what what a word of instruction or what a revelation really exactly and specifically means but the principle is very clear whatever happens in church must happen to strengthen those who are gathered the purpose of our gatherings isn't to entertain it's not to give a a platform to the people at the front it's to see each other strengthened for our lives with God that's the purpose Paul's second guideline, verse 27, is that everything must be intelligible. Paul, by the way, I don't know if you picked this up, he's he's glad for people to speak in tongues. But he doesn't want to abolish this practice from his churches, and that's why he gives the provisions that he does about tongues, intelligibility. He says in, in verse 27, if anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at the most three should speak at any time, and someone must interpret. If there's no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak himself to God. Church isn't supposed to be weird. It's not supposed to be a place that's so steeped in ancient, obscure traditions or highfalutin theology that nobody has any idea what's going on. It's not supposed to be some sort of mysterious spiritual mumbo-jumbo that leaves people scratching their heads. In fact, if there's anything happening in church that, that isn't likely to be understood, then it's important that we try to explain ourselves. And if you've been around here for any length of time, you'll know that's a principle that I hold very dear. That church should be understandable by all. Paul's third guideline, verse 29, is that everything must be weighed up. He says, two or three prophets should speak and the others should weigh carefully what is said. This morning's a good morning to put that principle into practice. Just because somebody gets into a pulpit or just because the Bible's read and somebody stands at a lectern like this and tries to explain it doesn't mean they're bringing you God's truth. Weigh it up. Ask yourself, is the Spirit of God confirming this interpretation of God's word that I've heard just now? And if he is, then then act on it. 
Take it to heart and act on it. Paul's fourth guideline, given in verses 30 to 33, is that everything must be orderly. Imagining the real gathering in Corinth, he says, if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. Now there's a great way to shut me up. Put your hand up and say, I've had a revelation and I have to stop if, if we do it the Corinthian way. In verse 33, Paul stresses the truth. God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. I think the basic principle here is that public gatherings shouldn't be shambolic. There should be flexibility and freedom, but they shouldn't be a free-for-all and and descend into chaos. Maybe today's a a breakthrough day for you when you read a passage like this. The day when you realize for the first time that the Apostle Paul was a Presbyterian. God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. Paul Paul wants us to know that things should be done in an orderly way. I've run out of time here this morning. And in our passage we've seen that that Paul's not opposed to tongues, which he had thought about so much in chapter 12, but that he prioritizes intelligible instruction. He longs to see Holy Spirit-led edifying worship in Corinth. And I'm right with him. That's how I would love our worship to continue to be here in Kirkpatrick Memorial. In just a moment, we're going to celebrate communion together. And we're going to be edified. We're going to learn again as we participate in Jesus' simple but eloquent memorial. As we eat that bread, we will remember his body broken for us. And as we take wine together, we'll remember his blood shed for us. And could I encourage you that as you're being edified here this morning, that you leave room for God's spirit to come and to lead you. Let's pay attention to to his promptings as he invites you to respond to the one who loved you and gave his life for you. Just now we're going to to sing an opening or or a a pre-communion hymn together. It's the song that you maybe heard the, the musicians and singers play as we were gathering this morning. What can wash away my sin? Just a couple of things before we sing. We'll, we'll keep our seats as we sing. Uh, and that will allow the stewards the opportunity to lift uh, this morning's offering. Uh, and also just to, to tell you that this morning, uh, David is going to conduct our communion part of our service for us. As an assistant minister, it's really great for him to get the chance to do, uh, to have a go at doing all the bits of, of church life that one day as a minister he'll, he'll be doing in his own right. So uh, I'm just mentioning that to you that he's, it's, he's not leading a mutiny. He and I have talked about this. Uh, it's all okay. Um, he's, he's going ahead with communion here this morning. So we keep our seats uh, and we sing a very simple, uh, a, quite a of its time kind of a song but a very powerful invitation just to to remember of the profound impact of Jesus blood shed for us uh, what can wash away my sin